Coming up next, the bookening has its third episode on Mansfield Welcome to The Booking. My name is Nathan Alverson. I am your humble and obedient host welcoming you to our third episode in the February, the month of love. Now, Brandon, we're past Valentine's Day now, I think. Let me see. Uh, yeah, surely. Just, uh, we're past Valentine's Day. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, this is Valentine. No. Last week was Valentine's Day. Last week's episode came out on Valentine's Day. What, hey. is, what are you saying about that? This Now we're, uh, it's February 21st. A couple days away from my wife's. 30th birthday. Your wife's 30th birthday. You got some big plans. Oh, yeah. Huge oh, yeah. plans. Amazing sweep. plans. The you best, just had to sweep her off her feet, and you plans. just had like an amazing Valentine's Day, as we know. I totally did. I totally won. You yeah. won? <laughs> <laughs> she was defeated. <laughs> no, I won the day. I, oh, won, won. I won the game of life. You won. You rode up on a white horse. There was a <laughs> little right. four-string quartet playing outside of her bedroom yeah. window when she woke up. Yeah. Roses and chocolates and violins and... Roses, chocolates, and violence. Violins. Oh, violence. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, how was your Valentine's Day? Did you take Mrs. Chastine for a ride in a, a carriage? I understand uh, love and marriage, they go together a little bit like a horse and carriage, is my understanding of how things work. Did you, did you... Let me tell you, brother. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> You took, you swept her off her feet. You yep. gave her some flowers, some yep. some chocolate, some yes. uh, night on the town. You mm-hmm. danced, you dined, you wined, you painted the town. W H I N D. W H I. You wined. I wined because <laughs> uh, my feet were sore <laughs> from all the dancing. Yeah. Well, you love your wife, though, right, Brandon? I do. She's probably listening right now. Why don't you say something nice to her? Hello, Anna. How are you doing, sweetie? <laughs> Cupcake. <laughs> Glad you're listening. <laughs> Hope you're enjoying this. That was very nice. Now, Jake, would you like to say something nice to your wife? He's thinking. He's, he's got like his... Why don't you just tell your wife something that only you two will understand, but no one else will get? No. No. <laughs> All right. Well, to my future wife... Send that $113. Yeah, send that $113. I forgot about that. Honey? Cupcake? Doll? It should be $143. Mm-hmm. Let the reader, listener understand. My wife would get it. 143 is there a is there like a bible verse like something nope. 143 it's not the, not a bible verse is it i'll leave you to puzzle page 143 nope. of something it's not page 143 of something this is from a song it may be in a song but i doubt it january 41st is someone's anniversary <laughs> 41st 143 143 dollars. that'll be the sign that'll be how we know you don't think i'll get married until january 1st 2030 <laughs> <laughs> january <laughs> First, 2030. What? Wait, what? How do you get that out of 140? Well, no, no, I'm sorry. January 4th, 2000. I'm not good at math. More <laughs> dates. January 1st, 2030. Uh, I just said it again. 143, Brandon. We got to solve this riddle. Easy as 143. Easy as 143. <laughs> you talk about Simple one. as do re mi. Jake yeah. just can't count. 143. <laughs> <laughs> do re mi. <laughs> Baby, can't you see? You'll see it on the sign. One four three. So what you said? If I Google one four three, will I get this? Possibly. 
I feel stupid. Oh, of course. I feel so stupid. Of course. One, four, three, Brandon. One, four, three. Oh. Well, I'll go- Google it too so I can join right into this. <laughs> do, 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 do. This is my hat for our listeners. Oh, one, four, three. Of course. Yes. And may I say, Brandon, one, four, three to you. And Jake, one, four, three. One, four, three. Should we tell the listeners? No. No. But can we tell the listeners one, four, three? Oh, yeah. One, four, three, listeners. One, four, three, listeners. One, four, three, five. (laughs) (laughs) One, four, three, five. Oh, no. (laughs) I gave you what you wanted. My wife got it instantly. She got one, four, three? Instantly. As soon as I said it. Is she a fan of that particular thing? Yeah. One, four, three to all the wives and beautiful women out there listening. One, four, three to everyone that's listening. You're all special. In your own uh, way. In your own. $143 a month. It's all it costs to purchase Nathan's hand in marriage. Right. That's exactly right. I will jump on that train and never look back. Guys, I should probably introduce us. My name is Nathan Albertson. I'm your humble and obedient host of The Bookening. Have been for nigh on, I don't know what episode this is. It's probably like 70. So we're we're getting close to that 100 uh, mark. So that's exciting. Going to do the big surprise for that. The big surprise. Yeah. Big celebrity guests we're going to get. Yeah. For that episode. <laughs> Is that right? I don't know. I figure we'll go ahead and promise it, and then we'll have to figure out a way to deliver. Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins <laughs> will come on, talk about his wonderful performance in Shadowlands and Remains of the Day. He's in two of our things this year, so maybe he wants to come on. Maybe. Probably does. None of this is, uh, well, I need to introduce you guys. we got the pastor who's a master of reading. His name is Jacob Menzel. How are you doing, Jake? Good. What's up, Nathan? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, you got the uh, 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 um, uh, scholar. Seabiscuit, Brandon. Hey. How are you doing, Brandon? Scholar, baller of reading. Yep. Fine fellow. A little bit Anthony Hopkins-esque, as we yes. discovered last week. He's got the repressed button down. He's always That's angry. Right. He That's hates right. me and Jake. That's right. And But you wouldn't know it because he, <laughs> would never he hides know it. it deep down. He, he glowers at us sometimes. So I like you guys guys but you never know it right because i'm glowering uh master of pig latin as we found out last episode yeah. he's got the hair he's got the the face he's got arms he's a man he's from texas shoes he, guys let's do some donor shout outs i expect a love themed donor shout out from both of you okay i want these donor shout outs <laughs> to sound very loving we'll go in the opposite of order of what we've been doing lately go back to the traditional order the trad order we got andrew and esther the lovebirds that sounded great right there oh you got to do it yourself andrew and esther the lovebirds all right wasn't any good what that wasn't good no no, you want to no i don't want to do it again okay well andrew and esther i'm sorry you didn't get it you you got a subpar brandon but you got an okay no no more no more no more no more jake let's let's hear some love for the inscrutable jenny z (laughs) <laughs> i'm sorry jenny does that like most of my dates with my wife i'm sorry Anna. <laughs> that's, that's love right there the inscrutable yeah, she's the inscrutable. Well, okay you know what i'm the single guy here so I'll, i can give the love to everybody there you go hey jenny z <laughs> i hear you're unscrutable unscrutable <laughs> making up new words for you here. thanks for the money Robert and Rhonda. Thanks for listening, you lovebirds. Going out to Robert and Rhonda. We got John and Jill and little baby Max. They're in love. And we got my beloved mother, Beth. <laughs> Brandon, we'll let you do that one. Uh, hey, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, we got Maya. Maya's, Maya's listening. Hey, Maya. 
And, uh, <laughs> it doesn't sound creepy at all. <laughs> this is what this is what the, your 143 good dollars is going to buy you. I mean, let's be real. This is this, when I'm in you know full uh, <laughs> full uh, romantic mode. Whatever. This is you know this is when I'm bringing the charm. And we got Jay and Katie. They were cold and love cheese. <laughs> This is how you'll read the chilies menu. <laughs> I got you a quesadilla. <laughs> Four bean dip. <laughs> we got Benjamin Tiberius. I don't know if he's got a love in his life, but Benjamin, we wish you to find a lovely lady if you don't have one. And if there's a Mrs. Tiberius, then uh, just get her. You sit down on your love seat. You listen to this episode, Benjamin. If you put your arm around her and uh, listen together, you know. And uh, we got Eric and, or no, we got Nathan, not me. I don't think he has, I don't know. You think Nathan, not me, he's got a a more out there? I hope so. He's got an eye on a a Mrs. Nathan, not me. Well, Nathan, not me, you just, uh, you get some red construction paper, you cut out a heart, you give it to to Mrs. Nathan, not me. And uh, cut out some newspaper letters and write the word love on it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't sign it. (laughs) Leave it on her doorstep. (laughs) So we've got that. Uh, We've got Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds, the original lovebirds on the book. And Eric and Catherine. Eric, you take her hand and uh, you hold it and you go for a long walk. <laughs> and then we've got Professor X. Professor X. I believe there's a Mrs. X. But we got Professor X. Hey, Professor X and Mrs. X. And uh, yeah, that's that's now Jake and Brandon. Yeah. Are you are you happy that you did do those donor shoutouts? I'm I'm so yes. sad. I'm a little nope. sad. I'm I'm just happy. I'm great. I feel the. I feel like those were perfect. I made everybody. I got them in a romantic mood for the month of the great month of February. That's how I would be feeling if I were. <laughs> I'd be in a, I bet everybody at home is feeling in a yeah. very romantic mood right now. You take her hand right now and <laughs> go for a walk. <laughs> a nice walk. <laughs> <laughs> I like to give people romantic. I, I think the mysterious own. phantom should <laughs> give romantic. Guys, uh, if there's one thing that I've said is that the mysterious phantom will never appear on our show again. It's not going to happen. There will not be, and especially not in February, the month of love, there will not be an appearance by the mysterious oh, phantom. No. Okay, guys. Um, oh, wait, you've been planning these episodes. <laughs> I'm really worried now. <laughs> well, I don't have anything to do with the mysterious phantom. He does what he wants, but he doesn't come on the show because I, Nathan Alberson, I am the humble and obedient host of this show. Hey, Brandon. Hey. Nope, wrong. No, yes. Hey. Hey, last time when we recorded our last episode on Mansfield Park, yeah. we were packing up. This was off mic. You said, that novel has a really great structure. Oh, boy. What did you, <laughs> what did you mean by that? Uh, it's, been a, it's been a little while. What did I say exactly that it has a... Well, sure. Let's talk it's, about the structure of this structure, novel. structure, yeah. I think what I meant by that were two things. One, the way the story develops is it's really well structured. It's well put together. So if you go through each of the moves, <laughs> is that what you meant? Ah, That's okay. exactly what I meant. Right. Illuminated. But <laughs> were those my exact words? I think you said we should talk about the structure because the novel's got a I fantastic some, structure or something. Some like interesting that. things I wanted to say about the structure. Yeah, well, yeah, it's coming back to me now. Okay, that fact that she has that last chapter where she's talking about all the lives—it's kind of the summary chapter. Mm-hmm. This is something you'll see a lot with later Victorian writers. So I don't want to commit to this statement, but it seems like she's kind of being forward mm-hmm. leaning with what she's doing with her fiction here because Dickens has a lot of these kinds of chapters. Yeah. And some of the other authors will have these kind of chapters. And I don't know, that seems to encapsulate kind of, it's an interesting move. I don't think Pride and Prejudice ended that way, right? Mm, not exactly. With the happy, 
here's how everybody ends. Here's how everybody's lives gets wrapped up. I mean, her novels do tend to, she's very classical. I mean, she ticks off all the, you know what, it's not like anything's left ambiguous usually. But not like where the chapters particularly set out to just tie up. Just to tie up the Every loose end, end, yeah. It's like a loose end tying chapter. Right. Which also leads to some of the problems people have with the novel. They feel like the the love with Edmund and Fanny just comes on too quickly. Mm-hmm. Like you don't actually get to see it happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that's not actually a big problem with this book. So that's one of the things that I had noted. And I wanted to go and do some research to see, was this unique to her? Was this some history she was tapping into with form with this kind of chapter? Because it did remind me a lot of how Dickens would end mm-hmm. his novels. I thought it was that was an interesting structural thing she did. Mm-hmm. The other really interesting thing she did was how she took one central motif or image and let that kind of unravel the story for us. And so in this case, it's the father leaving the house right. and the children being left alone and then having this play. Mm-hmm. And I may have... But how this play then acts as the central, like I said, motif for unraveling the story. So when you have the play, you see everybody's character. You see all their flaws kind of staged mm-hmm. for you. You get to see Edmund's lack of persistence in the face of a pretty girl. You get to see... um, Henry? Henry, you get to see Henry's ability to play to the crowd, his chameleon nature. He's the best actor by far in the You get to see Fanny, who her problem is she has principle, but she'll never actually enforce her principle on anyone. Yeah, she'll keep herself clean. Yeah. But that's as far as she And so go. it's all staged, it's all put there, like the cast of characters, and then the rest of the novel is just playing that out for us. And Jane Austen, she does the, she she goes back to that for us by having all the characters looking back to the play as this moment where they either wish it had never happened right. or they wish they could go back to it again as the brightest point of their life. And so it's just, it's brilliant. I didn't see really this in Pride and Prejudice. So it's an interesting literary uh, device that she's using here. Right. This, uh, s- it's not necessarily a symbol, but just a motif, some staging that then allows the rest of the play to kind of go forward, like a little cranking of the engine. Right. So when you have Mary specifically saying she looks back on the play and wishes they could go back to the most wonderful time before everything had gone wrong, and you have Edmund saying, oh, why did I ever, I should have known better, and everybody's character is completely defined by that play. Yeah. And it's, it is interesting as far as thinking about the characters go, the fact that it's the father who has to leave, and he leaves his house. Mm-hmm. And then it's ruled by these, in the case of the aunt, wicked. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is a nasty character. Aunt Norris, yeah. She's, I think she's much nastier, for example, than um, Elizabeth, the Mrs. Bennet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Nora, she's probably the nastiest female character I think that I've seen in a Jane Austen oh, novel. She's just malicious. She's sadistic. She just hates Fanny. I mean, and she's, it's her and fault. And derives that pleasure out of causing her pain at every possible moment. Right. Yeah. I mean, that line is so telling at the end when it says, I think it says something like, and not even Fanny's shed any tears for her Aunt Norris's departure. And then it goes on. And then it, not even when she had departed forever. That's one that sticks out to me. And I think there's more to be said about that last chapter in the context of your question, just structurally. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated how it kind of fits into the history of the novel at that time, Mm -hmm. because I don't, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that Pride and Prejudice ended with this kind of chapter. No, I mean, in Emma and Pride and Prejudice, we had chapters that did have some, do some work of summarizing, but there was always some scenes. And maybe this, it helps for the listener. So the last chapter is basically you just get little vignettes of mm-hmm. what each person's life is going to be from then on. What's nice, so in the author, actually, the other interesting thing that happens is she actually enters the story right at that point, right. too. So this is chapter 48. She says, let other pens dwell on guilt and misery. I quit such odious subjects as soon as I can and pay 
patient to restore everybody, not greatly in fault themselves, to tolerable comfort, and have done with all the rest. Mm-hmm. And so this is Jane Austen. She has suddenly, we've had a novel where she has not been a part of it at all. Right. So it's interesting that suddenly now she has entered the stage. It's clever because as a last chapter, and this is just coming to me now, what this actually reminds me a lot of, and I think she probably is being intentional with this, is how at the last of all of Shakespeare's plays, you'll have like the puckish character will come on and say, mm-hmm. thank you, listener, for being here. Now, right. here's what happened. Mm-hmm. Everybody go home and be at peace. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think this is really clever. Yeah. Uh, this is a cool little device she's doing here. I think it's her nod again, and I kind of like it also because it's validating my point. Mm. Her nod to the pa- fact that this theater, theatrical motif is essential to understanding what's happening with this novel. <laughs> so she tells you each of the things that's happening to each of the characters. And then where does she talk about Aunt Norris? Uh, it's, I've got it right here. Yeah. It's where she's actually, she's actually more or less tying up Mrs. Rushworth, right? Yeah, it says uh, she was regretted. This is Aunt Norris. She was regretted by no one at Mansfield. She had never been able to attach even though she loved best. And since Mrs. Rushworth's elopement, her temper had been in a state of such irritation as to make her everywhere tormenting. Not even if Fanny had tears for Aunt Norris, not even when she was gone forever. Before that... Mrs. Norris's removal from Mansfield was the great supplementary comfort of Sir Thomas's life. (laughs) (laughs) The great supplementary comfort of his life. His opinion of her had been sinking from the day of his return from Antigua in every transaction together from that period in their daily intercourse in her business or in chat. She had been regularly losing ground in his esteem and convincing him that either time had done her much disservice or that he had considerably overrated her sense and wonderfully borne with her manners before. (laughs) He had felt her as an hourly evil, which was so much the worse as there seemed no chance of it ceasing but with life. She seemed a part of himself that must be born forever. To be relieved from her, therefore, was so great a felicity that had she not left bitter remembrances behind her, there might have been danger of his learning almost to approve the evil which produced such a good. (laughs) 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 Turn that that knife. That is brutal. <laughs> he almost would have been happy that his daughter had an adulterous affair. <laughs> exactly. If only because it got rid of this horrible, awful, <laughs> terrible woman. <laughs> is there not a line where it says that she and Maria would make each other miserable? Yes. Yes, there is. It ended in Mrs. Norris's resolving to quit Mansfield and devote herself to her unfortunate Maria, and in an establishment being formed for them in another country, remote and private, where, shut up together with little society, on one side, no affection, on the other, no judgment, it may be reasonably supposed that their tempers became their mutual punishment. That's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> so I just read paragraphs. I should have just started higher and read all the way down. But My uh, wife and I, we were she's discussing with the book club. She's a part of the war and peace tonight. Mm-hmm. And before heading here, we were talking about the novel. Right. And she liked how in the end of war and peace, how Tolstoy gives people what they deserve. Mm-hmm. Kind of like he does in Anna Karenina. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some people don't get exactly what you would want for them, but that's because he's also a realist. But I like that when a fiction writer, because an author is very much shaping the world they're creating for you, mm-hmm. when they do give people what they deserve. It's going to be a strength with Dickens, also a weakness with him too, because he can be very sentimental with it. Right. But I like the fact that characters here at the end of the novel are getting what they deserve. She's wrapping up her cast of characters. And one of the criticisms of this book is that this ending is too quick. Mm-hmm. Right. The criticism, I understand where it's coming from if you're not really getting what 
what she's trying to do with the book. It would be nice to have a scene between Edward and Fanny just to give us the little moment between them, uh, some dialogue. I I will acknowledge feeling a little disappointed that we didn't get that. Yeah, yeah like the I walk. Mean, yeah, like the walk between Darcy and Elizabeth. Right. Exactly. Just yeah. just a little cathartic interaction where we get to see what Edmund and Fanny look like together. Right. Yeah. You know, just a, a window into what how that looks, how that works, how that give us. You know, don't leave it all to our imagination. Just a little bit more. It would have been, I felt that, but I also appreciated the way she wrapped it up. I wasn't too bothered by it. I was just Well, and I felt like we, we know, if she's going, if there's going to be one Jane Austen book where she doesn't give that to us, this is the one because we kind of know how Fanny and Edmund are together. And it's really cute. It's a nice little joke, the fact that she doesn't want to tell you exactly what happened or how long. I mean, I, the idea I got from it at least was that they fell in love with each other really quickly once Mary Crawford was out of the picture. You know, it didn't take Edmund long to right wisen up to wisen well, he realized up. he had always been in love with her right and so when you're so just to take this back to the question then when you're thinking of structure you always think then about usually structure deals with the plot which deals with action and so how do the actions relate to each other how are they paced and so a lot of the issues people have with this novel is that you have a very slow pace at the beginning mm-hmm. it's drawn out with the whole henry crawford stuff that happens and then suddenly at the end it's all very quick you don't get to see henry's fall into disgrace uh, yeah. And so it's unbelievable because we never got a, an idea that that's really the kind of person he was. Mm-hmm. We don't get to see Edmund woo Fanny. And so therefore that's unbelievable. Except that Edmund's been wooing Fanny since she was 10 years old and yeah. neither of them knew it. Right. Yeah. I would say that this novel is actually a very subtle novel. Yeah. And that if you're watching what she's doing, then all these things do make sense. And I don't think it's an, an issue with the novel either. I think that what she's wanting to do is she's testing your discernment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally yeah, right. absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So, and I think a lot of people failed. I mean, this is going to maybe sound arrogant. We all passed the test, so we love the novel. But I mean, yeah, I think people genuinely don't have the discernment to see what's wrong with the Crawfords, right. and so therefore they hate this novel because they're like, <laughs> Mary's a lot like Elizabeth. Bennett. Mary's like Emma. Why? Why is Jane Austen going out of her way to just suddenly Henry didn't have to end that way? Do assess he, ex machina. I don't She's really believe he was that these deeply characters, Reward these characters. Why is she doing? But it's all there. It's all there. Well, yeah. The reality is Henry and Mary were bad eggs. Right. Well, let's talk about that. Hey, I just want to just say that you know what you were saying earlier. I, I've had people come up and complain to me about the ending. Uh, one person said it's almost like Austen died and somebody else finished the novel and wrote the final chapter, sister or somebody or mm-hmm. nephew. And so just I, acknowledging that it's not just critics or whoever that feel that way. A lot, a lot of people. Feel a lot of people like feel that, that way. I would go so far as to say this novel might be more popular if it had a more conventional and more drawn out, give you the kiss between Edmund yeah. and Fanny. You know, you can see, you, you can imagine how a movie would do do it and you can imagine gone a little more over the top Mm -hmm. in drawing the flaws in Henry and Mary's characters Mm -hmm. I don't think we've ever really talked a whole lot about the value of having to work with a piece of art versus a piece of art that just kind of does the work for you Mm mm-hmm I actually think there's value to both, but you have to know which kind of thing you're dealing with at the time. Pride and Prejudice was more of a book that kind of did all the work for you. Yeah. As soon as you get into the book, but I think what I meant when I said I'm really fascinated by the structure here is I think you begin to see with a lot of more mature writers, like with War and Peace and Anna Karenina, for example, you're not just thinking about character. You're also thinking about the way he's creating and crafting the book for you. The interweaving of the story of Levin and Anna. Why why is the story going the way it's going? Why is it pieced together this way? Why the horse scene? Why these 
these things that are happening. And it's because they're not just writing the psychology of characters, they're also crafting a work of art for you. And part of that is with the pacing of scenes, plot, action, and then a clever writer, someone who who is having fun with what they're doing, and it's perfectly fine to have fun with what you're doing. Mm -hmm. They're going to start doing things like she's doing here. They may fail at it, but I don't think she's failing at it. But I do think you need to realize that she's not doing what she was trying to do with Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, she's it, writing it's her own little, this is its own thing, crafted in its own way. And it has its own little structural plot elements that are really interesting that are happening here. This is a story about morality and about parenting and about wisdom and discernment. If you look at it that way, it all makes sense. If you look at it as a romantic comedy, like so many people think of Pride and Prejudice as being, then it's kind of going to drop the ball on you. Yep. And But that's your fault for just not knowing what Jane Austen's actually doing in all of her novels, including yeah. Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. I mean, but think about any good Shakespeare play. You don't just talk about character with a Shakespeare play. Mm-hmm. You can't. With Shakespeare play, you have to talk about plot action. You have to talk about structure, the dialogue. themes that are happening, dialogue, the way he's crafting what's on the page, and then that gets performed on the stage. And so I'm, I'm, I guess the point I'm trying to make is this is a very, it's a, it's a work that asks you to be mature with the mm-hmm. way you handle it, which means that you're not just trying to dive in to lose yourself in a character. You're diving in to read a work of art that's been written for you to read and enjoy. And then when she does something strange or you think is weird and you don't like, maybe take a step back and say, okay, what is Jane Austen trying to do? Why is she doing this? And have some faith that she's a good writer. And that if suddenly she's putting a chapter like this that's weird to you, maybe you're the one that needs to be taught and not her by your lack of getting it. Yeah. On the booking, we can be awfully iconoclastic towards things like Ernest Hemingway, for example, or modernist writers that we just don't think are quite up to snuff. But I really think you should always approach a book with humility, especially somebody as old and renowned as Jane Austen, especially somebody that's a genius like Jane Austen. You should allow the book to discipline you. If she did it and it strikes me weird, the problem's probably with me. Maybe exactly. not, but I'm going to start by assuming the problem's with me and try and figure it out. And then maybe I'll find that it's not, but... Yeah, that's perfect. Because you got it exactly why I was feeling weird saying this at first. And it is because of things we've said about Joyce and Faulkner, who I could see my snotty friend that I've mentioned before mm. coming on and saying, well, but you guys didn't care about structure and Joyce and Hemingway and Faulkner, and they were all very sophisticated with their structure. You didn't even really deal with that. And that's because Jane Austen has spent two other novels gaining our trust. Right. And we know that she's really good and we like what she's doing and she's humble but she's also just loves the craft that she's doing and i'm willing to be taught by somebody like jane austen in a way that i'm not willing to be taught by hemingway yeah that's just what it comes down to and you just have to know when to hold them you have to know well you have to know when to take an author seriously and when to just not have any time for it life is too short you you don't have time to be taught by faulkner because he's just not a good teacher for you. Well, Hemingway's a great example because he's immediately going to, within the first third of his novel, he's going to tell you that you should jump into bed with the first submissive, pretty young thing that you find. There's just, it doesn't take a rocket science. It doesn't take a great moral scientist to figure out what's wrong with that or why Hemingway's not. <laughs> and it also doesn't mean that for young writers out there who want to learn the craft of writing, it, it isn't good to have a teacher show you these things that Hemingway did really well. Oh, sure. But that's also where your teachers matter too. So mm-hmm. just be discerning in what you read, who you trust, the why you trust you them, to. the podcast you listen to, the teachers you have, the writers you idolize. Like we talked about with the Shadowlands episode, that came before all this, right? Yes. You know, we're iconoclastic because 
You shouldn't have the wrong idols. So. No, you should just always, the right idols. Just the right idols. The, the right idols. The bookending should be your only idol. <laughs> right. <laughs> Listen to us. Oh, you Drink the mean, Kool-Aid. You have any idols, yeah. You know what yeah, Brandon was... met, folks. I think that's a pretty fantastic last chapter, by the way. I, I love how it... Yeah, I would love an extra scene with Edward Edmund Fanny. That would be cathartic, like Jake said. But I certainly love the way that she's just dealing out <laughs> justice to everybody. But let's talk about the issue. Jake... Why is Mary Crawford not the same as Emma or Lizzie, just a foolish woman that needs to learn a valuable lesson and fall in love with Edmund? Mary is not a woman of... But Emma wasn't a woman of either. Yes, she was. She was, but she was. the whole novel was about how she was a foolish young lady. Well, okay, so here's the thing. Looks can be deceiving. A lot of young people fall into this trap, especially if you have a pretty young face. Good manners can cover over bad character. And good manners, when they're handed down because of class or whatever, they can cover over bad character, but bad character is bad character. You know, what you see in in somebody like Mary is a lot of good manners covering over a lot of bad character. And the same with, with Henry. A lot of good and pleasing, pleasant manners. He, he They're not that dissimilar from... Who's the villain? Pride and Prejudice. Not Mr. Bennett. Willoughby. Oh, um, Willoughby. Willoughby. No, it's not Willoughby. Oh. No, it's not Willoughby. You're right. It's... No, um, um, what is his name? It's like Wickham. Wickham. Yeah. Woodstock. Mr. Yeah. Wickham. Yeah. Wickham. Wickham has good, pleasant, pleasing manners mm-hmm. and bad character. And what's interesting about Mary and Henry is that Austin goes and makes them more sympathetic... I think she really wants us to question our Yes, she really does. Readers. Like like it really is a lot more sophisticated than anything she tries to do in Pride and Prejudice. Well, yeah, she tells you that Wickham's bad because she gives you the scene right away of Wickham saying, "Now I would never tell anybody's secrets to anybody. Now let me go and tell all the bad secrets and dirty, you know, it's really... We're supposed to be able to see uh, from kind of a God's eye point from of view. From the very beginning. Have, we understand the irony that's going on the whole time. Yeah. With these characters, we're supposed to really wonder, like, has Henry changed? Does he and come can, around? Yeah, Does and he can he come Fanny? around? And, and you it, finally end up thinking... Well, well and then she validates... Well, yeah, I, I lived with that tension for most of the book, and I felt very nervous of, is the rug going to be pulled out from under me one way or another? Because here in the very first chapter, we found out that, oh, oh, Edmund and Fanny, of course, they should turn out. It would be so sweet. What a wonderful little Cinderella story. Yeah, it was almost too perfect. Too perfect. And it's like, is she setting us up for a... For an actual fall here one way or another. It's just validating to have her come back at the end, like she said, and said, and say, well, if Henry just could have a couple of things, then maybe... If he just didn't go to that party, man. If he just right. didn't have to conquer Mrs. Rushworth again. But at the end of the day, character will out. What you have in Emma is you have a good, solid foundation with a lot of rough edges and a lot of problems that are expressed and look like bad manners. Right. <laughs> but they come from good, sometimes bad and sinful things, but also sometimes from good intentions, just w- without wisdom or maturity. That can be worked with. What can't be worked with is... <laughs> manners without the principle of virtue guiding and governing it's it's fig leaves on on the i need a metaphor guys it's 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 whitewash on the tomb mm-hmm. right it's um, lipstick on the pig lipstick on the pig <laughs> and well that's what you have you know and and it's a real contrast because and it's meant to be a real contrast you've got mary and henry and they're pigs with some really great lipstick and enough great lipstick to fool edmund mm-hmm. and Sorry, this is a great metaphor. But. You're going to derail me if you, if you <laughs> don't and, let me. Me and Brandon are smiling here, but go ahead. I'm sorry. It is, it's, yeah. I'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, Enough grape lipstick to trick Edmund. Yeah. Almost get Fanny to come around. On the flip side, Edmund and Fanny's virtues shine through so well, despite their external circumstances, that they can attract corrupt people. People who don't have that principle of virtue, but that can recognize it enough to appreciate it and be influenced by it. I think Mary and Henry are both some of the most three-dimensional. This novel just has the most realistic characters, I think, of maybe any Jane Austen novel. We'll see when we get to round up Persuasion some year later on. Like Darcy is just Darcy and Elizabeth is just, they're almost mythological, they're archetypal, they're they're types um, and wonderfully done. But they're a little bit like grotesques compared to these characters, which are pretty down to earth and real. And well, everybody and everything's in play. Mary Crawford, in a way it's that... like she's attracted to Edmund in spite of the fact that, I mean, she could go after Tom, who's the rich brother. Right. And she wishes There was that something Ed- about Edmund that she really liked and it really irked her. Everything about it irked her. But at the end of the day, she was like, and I can't help but be happy to think that Tom might die and make Edmund rich. And know? it says that once she loses Edmund, she regrets it. She's like, she can't find anybody that combines those qualities. And her stupid, witty, mm-hmm. morally bankrupt friends aren't as fun to hang out with anymore after her experience at Mansfield Park. Yeah. yeah. And it's also it's interesting to see how the two sets of characters are parallels to one another. Mm-hmm. So Fanny has her principles. Right. And Mary has her principles. Mary's principles are she won't marry anybody who's poor. Right. Yep. Right. And her principles lead her a very specific way. And then Fanny has her principles that leads her a very specific way. And so the Jane Austen is showing us you can have principles that are corrupted. Mm-hmm. Right. And it doesn't matter that you're just a principled person. Your principles have to actually have to be good principles. Right. And so then also Edmund fails by not being committed Right. And so he lets the play happen. Mm -hmm. All these things. He keeps falling for Mary. And then you have Henry, who tries to be committed. He decides he's going to seduce. There's that really weird scene where he tells Mary that he's going to make Fanny fall. fall It'll be a good joke. It's like a a game. Yeah. It reminds me of like, there's some movie that's like this, right? Like Cruel Intentions. Yeah. That's what it reminded me of. (laughs) But he fails completely. Right. But he decides he's going to make Fanny fall in love with him, largely because it seems like Fanny is kind of the Dickensian angelic person Mm -hmm. but she has her flaws unlike like the famous Dickensian example is Agnes from David Copperfield Mm -hmm. she has no flaws whatsoever that's because it's one of the stupidest parts from David Copperfield that's because David Copperfield was Dickens and he wanted to give himself the perfect woman right but uh, not Flannery (laughs) O'Connor Fanny she has her flaws yeah I think we've pointed those out yeah yeah we talked about some but despite those flaws she still has this backbone and persistence that destroys Henry and also then, in a very beautiful moment, brings Sir Thomas to repentance. Yeah. And it's actually, we haven't talked about, are you wanting to talk about Thomas eventually? Yeah, we'll talk about that more next episode, yeah. actually. But I think that's just a beautiful story, what happens with him. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. That's what I want to sort of wrap up our discussion of this novel with, actually. Yeah, so anyways. But um, but I liked the parallels that are happening there. And so you get to see the two sets of Edmund through his lack of persistence. He fails, but then eventually... That's not his damnation. Right. Because that's just a lack, that's a weakness in character mm-hmm. as opposed to a wickedness in character. Well, it's also Henry's weird. persistence is wickedness because it's it's just really disgusting. And I think anybody who wants to say that he's like Darcy forgets the fact that he told his 
basically told his sister he was going to woo and bed this innocent girl. Yeah, just because it's just fun because to he could. It's, it's a nice way to flex yeah. your muscles. As yeah, and you can't forget that scene if you think price. if you're going to try and convince me that Henry's a good character, you're being really dumb and forgetting that scene. But Austin does a nice job of making when he finally shows up when she, after she's been living in squalid misery and he's really gallant. You do actually forget. I mean, you're like, of course you do. Wow, I hope this this guy. I can actually see this guy having a chance, and I can see myself not hating the novel. If he gets away with it. Yeah. Sheep's clothing always looks like sheep's clothing. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a real sense that Henry might just turn it all around. And that's where the three-dimensional stuff that Nathan was talking yeah, about. Yeah, and I think there's a real sense in which Mary would love, there's part of her that would like to get married to a good man that would the like choosing to sort of, of be disciplined the by The choosing him. of Edmund would, would have been something... Yeah, because I think one way to see Henry is also kind of as a tragic figure, because what we do get to see, the three-dimensionality with him, he does see something in Fanny that attracts him, and he wishes he was the kind of man that could have had oh, her. Yeah. I think Mary But and there's Henry just both. some sort yeah. of self-destructive thing with him that yeah. in the end, he doesn't think that he can change, and he's unwilling to, and so then he just destroys it all. And I see that. I mean, I've seen it in myself. I've seen it in others. Oh, sure. Just this self-destructive principle. Mm-hmm. Well, the one thing is, we know about yeah. them, about the Crawfords, I uh, excerpted this sentence because I think it's important to remember. Admiral Crawford was a man of vicious conduct who chose, instead of retaining his niece, to bring his mistress <laughs> under his own roof. So that's who Mary and I think Henry, to some extent, I mean, were shaped by. Were shaped by. It's an interesting question in Jane Austen. I think Jane Austen's one of the most interesting novelists to ask this dumb old question of nature versus nurture, especially this novel where we see poor characters are can be bad and selfish, rich character, like anybody can be anything, but you also see how people are shaped by their circumstances. I don't know what the, I don't know what the, what, I don't know, maybe I should just ask you guys, nature or nurture in the world of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park? It's, it's hard both. to, yeah, both. it's hard to say it is yeah. both because both. they're orphaned, right? Mary and Henry. Yeah. And are raised by this aunt and uncle that take sides and then hate one another and give Mary a bad image and picture of what marriage is. Mm-hmm. Cause there's that whole scene where she's talking about marriage and her friends and the marriage between her aunt and uncle and how that has just really perverted her sense of what a good marriage would look like right. or if it's even possible. Right. It's, but you then know, you have Fanny and you have her brother and they come from that and her awful sister, home. Susan who is much better than her other sister. If there is a, a place where I've re- I've seen in Austin a, a case for nature and nature being something independent of class, it's this novel, right? Mm. You've got Fanny and William and Susan. Susan's the yeah. sister, yeah. Susan. The good sister, yeah. Edmund. And they all come from the same three sisters. And then you got the flip side of them. And then you've got the higher class Crawfords and the bad eggs. Right, yeah. But you've also got Sir Thomas, as we'll talk about next episode, reflecting on how he botched the nurture Absolutely. of his daughters. Well, so, yeah, it has to be both, I guess. It's nuanced, yeah. yeah. She realizes that it's both, that you can have a she bad egg that you can make. Answers. Yeah, you have a bad egg that you can make. You can't ever make it a not bad egg. Well, but. Susan's the good, the example in the novel that's striking of someone who obviously grew up in a bad environment, has all these bad impulses, but Fanny just discovers she basically has... Actually, actually, she does give you a bad egg that becomes a good egg with uh, Tom, the oldest son. With Tom, the oldest son. And it yeah, happens because you almost, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you almost die. Yeah, he almost dies. And it's because... Jane, she knows exactly what does these things. Yeah, I excerpted it's, that sentence too. If, he if became have, what he ought to be, useful to his father, steady and quiet, and not merely living for himself. Exactly. If you have somebody as bad as John Newton, 
Mm. It's going to take almost dying right. to save that person. Yeah. And God does those things, and Jane Austen knows it. And that's mm-hmm. how she and she writes stories that aren't the bad Return of our last whatever Jedi. What was this? The, the, the last, uh, the last, the last Jedi. Jedi fake feminist view of the world. It's an accurate godly view of the world. And the difference is something like what happened to Henry should have been a catalyst for change, but you know we really see the Crawford's true colors when we see Mary and Edmund having their, and Mary's like, well, we can make this blow over and then we can cover this up and this can be, you know, the real evil becomes obvious is that it became a public thing. Right. That it was discovered and not that it wasn't something that could be hushed and quieted up. Well, you see that with her, it was always an issue of her pride and her Mm self-image. Yeah. And her brother was tied to that. And so she was always, you see, I've seen this a lot with people Mm -hmm. who are like her they're always going to be very protective of their family and those mm-hmm. people who they see as part of their image and very defensive against outsiders. Right. Right. And so if anything tries to attack that, that immediately becomes the enemy, even if it's obvious that their relative was the evil person. But they'll be very generous about extending that kindness to you. Like yeah. they'll, they'll decide the whole Mansfield Park is their family and they're going to take them in too. But, you know, then they'll... As soon as it turns sour, they will They be, will close ranks. Yeah. Yeah. Fanny will become your enemy, even though Fanny has never done anything wrong. So Yeah, it's a very recognizable type, that's for yeah. sure. And then, yeah, she gets what she deserves. Right. So her own bitter heart becomes her destruction. Right. So yeah, everybody's kind of, I hate this phrase, but everyone's hoisted on their own petard in this. The, every, the people... You don't hate that phrase. You use it all the time. I know. Time. And I hate myself yeah. every time. I'm like, I wish I was using a less dumb old phrase, but... It's a good phrase. Everybody friend. made their bed and everybody lies in it. And Mrs. Norris created her own hell. And so did Mrs. Rushworth, and so did Henry, and so did Mary. And they all don't have anyone to blame but themselves. And people don't get excused just for the fact that they're stupid either. Because Mr. Rushworth, you don't get the sense that he could have ever been better than he was. No, he's just an idiot. But Jane Austen still just writes him off. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Nature made you stupid. <laughs> yep. She she has a little bit of mercy on the Yates, I guess. Um, Mr. Yates and whatever the sister's Julia. name is, Julia. That's right. But she wasn't ever as hard. She was just kind of dumb. She wasn't ever as hard-hearted, I don't think, as her. No, people get redemption. It's one of the better part, one of the things I like about Austin. It was mostly, this is what she says, that Julia escaped better than Maria was owing in some measure to a favorable difference of disposition and circumstance, but in a greater Hmm. to her having been less the darling of that very aunt, less flattered and less spoilt. Her beauty and acquirements had held but a second place. She had always been used to think herself a little inferior to Maria. Her temper was naturally the easiest of the two. Her feelings, though quick, were more controllable, and education had not given her so very hurtful a degree of (laughs) self-consequence. That's a good line. (laughs) Everyone, every homeschooler should read this book. That's a great line right there. Well, and most of most of the sins that we see of Julia are the Julia are the sins of bratty jealousy. The reason she hates her sister is because her sister is always the best, and well, they're but, fighting about who gets the part in the play. She's so proud that she gets to ride in the carriage and that one in the front of the carriage and that one. Yeah, you know when they go on that trip. It was also like the, you got that real sense that she really can't have anything nice. Like right. Maria gets. Mr. Rushworth and also Henry Crawford. Maria is going to try to have her cake and eat it too. Julia is going to get the crumbs. Right. It was nice. It's nice to see that Mr. Yates, the dumb idiot, <laughs> play loving. He thinks he's so smarter than Mr. Sir Thomas. That was a funny yeah. scene. It was pretty hilarious. Yep. 
he's just like the hipster character in this. He's just like, hey, for anybody who wants to see a master, he comes around and he's just like lives to please Sir Thomas or something right. like that. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> is that what that yeah. But if anybody wants to see masterful use of that free indirect style, go and read the scene where he walks into the middle of this kind of tense mo- family moment <laughs> and, he and then just it. starts talking about the play. <laughs> <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> Talking about Julie, she was humble and wishing to be forgiven, and Mr. Yates, desirous of being really received into the family, was disposed to look up to him, that's Sir Thomas, and be guided. He was not very solid, but there was a hope of his becoming less trifling, of his being at least tolerably domestic and quiet, and at any rate, there was comfort in finding his estate rather more and his debts rather much less than he had feared, and in being consulted and treated as the friend best worth attending to. You know what's interesting about the novel, and it's so interesting coming from Jane Austen, who's such a great caustic wit, is the virtue of quietness, of sobriety, of steadiness. It is the virtue. It's one of the virtues. Yeah, the ability to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> I Either as a, a, a fool who's just keeping that folly in, or as a wise man who's causing no unnecessary pain. Mr. Yates is basically okay, sort of tolerable, because he's able to just be steady and quiet. When Tom repents, it says, well, it says steady and quiet. He became what he ought to be, useful to his father, comma, steady and quiet. Mm -hmm. Steady and quiet. Right. There you go. Young man. Shut up. (laughs) Learn to be steady and quiet. And then one day, maybe somebody will care what you have to say. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Well, that's, I mean, all of Austin's men are steady and quiet men. What she hates are little men who are out to prove themselves. What she hates are little men who are out to get glory or make, like, the men who are mocked are the men who have to make themselves bigger than they are, like Collins. Collins, And the men who get bad ends are the men who make a a big show of being gallant and putting on airs that Mm. betray an impoverished character. And mm-hmm. what she what she likes, what she loves, and what she commends to you are just guys who keep their mouth shut, who are wise, who love people, who work, and they don't need any praise from anybody because doing what's right is good enough for them. Yep. Let yeah. That, let that be a lesson to you, young man. <laughs> Something to live up to, that's for sure. Man. Well, we haven't talked a lot about the church scene. And before we leave the Crawfords behind, I just want to mention that church scene. Fantastic. If you you look at the play, you can predict everything that happens if you have a little discernment about the way that the play is going. If you with Fanny sit back and just watch everybody, you can kind of figure out who's good and who's bad. But I want to say the church scene is even more of a, if you want to understand why Mary Crawford is not anyone to be respected. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. Maybe maybe it's not that. Maybe it's earlier than that. What are, you, are you looking for something in particular? I love. It is. Is it nine? It's yeah. It's chapter. You're looking for where they talk about the clergyman and all that. Yeah. At, yeah. It's it's in the it's in the middle of nine. Yeah. There it is. The clergyman cannot be high in state or fashion. He must not head mobs or set the tone and dress. But I cannot call that situation nothing which has the charge of all that is of the first importance to mankind, individually or collectively considered, temporally and eternally, which has the guardianship of religion and morals and consequently of the manners which result from their influence. Mm-hmm. And with regard to their influencing public manners, Miss Crawford must not misunderstand me, or suppose I mean to call them the arbiters of good breeding, the regulators of refinement and courtesy, the masters of the ceremonies of life. The manners I speak of might rather be called conduct, perhaps the result of good principles, the effect, in short, of those doctrines which it is their duty to teach and recommend, and it will, I believe, be everywhere found that, as the clergy are, or not what they ought to be, so are the rest of the nation. Sounds like really wise teaching we've heard. (laughs) 
My favorite part, I don't know if it's later or earlier, Mary takes it, goes on to talk about how uh, great it is that nobody's required to go to chapels anymore. Yes. Yeah. And that's where Fanny pretty much <laughs> decides that Mary is not really worth thinking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Fanny judges Mary for the rest of the book based on yeah. that. But what I like about this part here is that you see Jane Austen's discernment and you also see the fact that nothing is really new. Um, and later on when Henry is talking about, well, yeah, I guess it, it's later in the book, but he and um, Edmund are debating the clergy, are discussing it again, and Edmund and Henry basically concludes, well, if I could be a clergyman in the city, at least people would then be able to judge the value of my sermon based on like the construction of it, the structure mm-hmm. of it. Like They would be able to just judge, is it well written? And I guess I could live with that. And so... <laughs> you find it? What's so great about the scene is that Mary doesn't know or doesn't have in her mind that Edmund is going to take orders. Right. So they arrive at the chapel, and she just starts spouting off what she thinks is clever right? Clever stuff, and Edmund engages her. Right. And then a little later, Julia's like, oh, if only Edmund had taken orders, we could get the marriage done right now. And, and, then, and Austin has this moment where she says, Miss Crawford's countenance, as Julia spoke, might have amused a disinterested observer. <laughs> <laughs> she looked almost aghast under the new idea she was receiving. Fanny pitied her. <laughs> How distressed she will be at what, what what she said just now passed across her mind. Aww. Ordained, said Miss Crawford. What, are you to be a clergyman? <laughs> but this is after... Um, How could you not love Fanny? She's so sweet. <laughs> I know. <laughs> She's... <laughs> How distressed she will be. <laughs> it must do... This, so this is Crawford, Mrs. Miss Crawford laughing. So Fanny's like, it's a pity that the custom should be discontinued of, you know, everybody coming to the thing. And she says, and she's laughing while she says this, must do the heads of the family a great deal of good to force all the poor housemaids and footmen to leave business and pleasure and say their prayers here twice a day while they're inventing excuses themselves for staying away. And Edmund defends Fanny. Then she says, at any rate, it is safer to leave people to their own devices on such subjects. Everybody likes to go their own way to choose their own time and manner of devotion. The obligation of attendance, the formality, the restraint, the length of time altogether is a formidable thing and what nobody likes. And if the good people who used to kneel and gape in that gallery could have foreseen that the time would ever come when men and women might lie another 10 minutes in bed when they woke with a headache without danger of reprobation because chapel was missed, they would have jumped with joy and envy. Cannot you imagine with what unwilling feelings the former bells of the House of Rushworth did many a time repair to this chapel? The young Mrs. Eleanor's and Mrs. Bridget's starched up into seeming piety, but with their heads full of something very different, especially if the poor chaplain were not worth looking at. And in those days, I fancy Parsons were very inferior even to what they are now. For a few moments, she was unanswered. Fanny colored and looked at Edmund, but felt too angry for speech. He needed a little recollection before he could say, Your lively mind can hardly be serious, even on serious subjects. You have given us an amusing sketch, and human nature cannot say it was not so. We must all feel at times the difficulty of fixing our thoughts as we could wish. But if you are supposing it a frequent thing, that is to say a weakness grown into a habit from neglect, what could be expected from the, the private devotions of such persons? Do you think the minds which are suffered, which are indulged in wanderings in a chapel, would be more collected in a closet? <laughs> and this your response. Yes, very likely. <laughs> they would have two chances at least in their favor. There would be less to distract the attention from without, and it would not be tried so long. And then this was it. Uh, The mind which does not struggle against itself under one circumstance would find objects to distract it in the other, I believe. Snap. Snap. (laughs) (laughs) And the influence of the place and of the example and of example may often rouse better feelings than are begun with. Man. But yeah, just that. I'm sorry to read all of that. 
I mean, all feels salient to me. I love it. But she just simply blows up that simple idea. Every Everybody, every evangelical who thinks, <laughs> oh man, it's just better that we don't have, I don't even need to go to church. Just my private devotions. Yeah, I'm going to go out to the woods yeah. and find my happy place with Jesus, you know? You think that if you, if you can't come together with a bunch of people who are there to worship God and not be distracted... <laughs> <laughs> and discipline yourself in a place where everybody's there to worship God and everybody, you you, you think if you can't do that, you're going to be better off by yourself. By yourself in the woods. <laughs> in the woods. <laughs> so, so tell me more about your self-discipline. <laughs> Please tell me more about the, the command of your soul and your, and your heart that you have. And then he still falls for her. What an idiot. <laughs> what an idiot. What a relatable what a, idiot. What a normal what guy. What a, I would do the exact same thing. <laughs> oh, you're cute. Oh, real pretty. <laughs> and but you know, it's not even that. He's you see, he's actively excusing her, even as and and he lets the city stuff come in. Like uh, I didn't read the last line, which is like I haven't forgotten how long prayers can be in Oxford. Right. Yeah. Something like that. You know, I'm sure the clergymen in London are pretty faces who are happy to get up twice a week and get paid and nobody and they get lost in the crowd and nobody they don't have to worry about their private lives. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm not going to dispute that you paint a fair picture, right? But you might not be thinking so clearly about it. <laughs> you know, he thinks he's going to improve her. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's always right. a good idea to go into a marriage. I'm going to make you better, baby. Yeah. <laughs> You'll learn to respect me. <laughs> You will. <laughs> and my job that you've said you hate and have no respect for whatsoever. And you woman who doesn't, you don't seem to respect anybody but yourself and your <laughs> brother, you will learn to respect me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's so relatable. Edmund might be my favorite Jane Austen hero just because, you I know. I think he might be mine. I could never be knightly, but <laughs> I might be able to be Edmund. <laughs> yeah. Both in his weakness, I mean, well, especially in his weaknesses, but man. Well, much like I'm sure Edmund reflected in his later life, I'm so thankful for the women that I've been attracted to that God's allowed not to work out in one way or another. Just I like a pretty face and I like someone who's witty and man. And Jane Austen is clever enough, I think, to lend some of her own wit to Mary Crawford. I mean, she is painting a lively portrait. She's not wrong. Her cynicism is completely correct. I'm sure that's exactly how the bells of Southerton felt about going to chapel half the time. You know, Mary Crawford's never, you know... She is witty. She is, yeah, she's she not is, that far off. She is likable, you know, in her way. She she would, if you put her... If Fanny's her, scandalized, because Fanny's, you know, she's in like this reverie of, wouldn't it be lovely to... Right. <laughs> Fanny's too outraged to speak. She colored and was too <laughs> outraged to speak. <laughs> yeah. And then she has the good enough tenderness of heart to pity Mary when she realizes, oh, Edmund's going into... Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't see how people don't love Fanny, especially people that are, I know we talked about Fanny last episode, especially anyone who's ever struggled with shyness or timidity or fear of man or whatever. Fanny's just so relatable in the way that she, like when when they're putting on the play and Fanny's watching them and she can't help but be a little bit amused, you know, even Fanny's not above getting a kick out of how selfish everyone's being in the play. I mean, yeah. it says she could not watch unamused or something like that. You know, I mean, Fanny's just like, I don't know. I understand people might prefer a more active character, I guess, to a passive character, but whatever. People are dumb. I like Fanny Crawford. Jake's last episode said I should marry her, if I recall correctly. So That's right. Go marry her. Fanny, send your $143 in. If you're listening, I hope you have a different name, because that name doesn't really hold up too well in the 21st century. Yeah.
Nathan was written and produced by Nathan Alberson. It was, uh, you got your Brandon. I have it on good authority. His favorite barbecue, Indiana barbecue. You love the Indiana barbecue, right, Brandon? When it's done by Texas uh, expatriates, yeah, sure. <laughs> do you prefer a good Texan barbecue? Yeah, there's Is nothing it, like it. That would be delicious. Does anyone have any? We Texan should do a bookending episode once where we just sit around and smoke a brisket. <laughs> that would be amazing. That'd be awesome. Let's do yeah. it. Maybe we'll do that for the 100th episode. We should do that when we read The Odyssey. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A, lot, a lot of meat eating in that. Bring some brisket in, some ribs. Mm. That might actually True be around story. the time of our 100th episode. The, the, I officiated a wedding in Austin, and I had brisket from... Where did I have brisket from? Mueller's restaurant, right? No, that was... Well, that was for... Did you have it from Franklin's? We had Franklin's during the day, one day brought to us. Yeah. It was amazing. Oh, yeah. I have to say, you and your brother, closest thing I've had to that anywhere, ever. It's good to hear. Yeah. Well? Premium quality brisket right there little plug for my brother's future restaurant jay allen's barbecue coming to indiana in the next year it's the real deal man <laughs> yeah it's pulling no punches it's the real thing yeah. real pit smoked barbecue mm, it's nothing like it <laughs> smoked for 14 15 hours these boys know what they're about he probably wants to be a sponsor of the booking right definitely we'll read some copy for the right yeah. price oh yeah Give if, them a you're, discount. if you're within like 50 miles of us and have any idea what good Texas barbecue is like, you should just wait for the opening of this restaurant and uh, plan a trip and come hang out with the booking and yeah. uh, get some really great Texas barbecue. That'd be, That's really, that'd be a lot idea. of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're a beautiful woman and you want to give $143, we'll give you a discount on your, your uh, brisket. <laughs> Um, um. Nathan will buy it for you because, yeah. you know, you're practically already engaged. Yeah, practically. You'll, you'll still have to tip. Yeah, no, yeah well, well, it might come out of the $143. Let's be yeah. honest here. I was going to say something. Forgot about what it was, Brandon. I think we all want brisket right now. <laughs> I think the important yeah. thing is... We all- I, you know, the dumbest thing is I'm sitting here thinking... I would just be happy to pack up and go to Arby's before they close for a stupid brisket sandwich yeah. from Arby's. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not a good substitute for Texas brisket. No, it's taste a fine sandwich, though. It's Arby's a fine sandwich, Arby's but it's, 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 it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Arby's it's has right. gone up. Arby's has come around. Arby's was a bad place in Ion about five or more years ago, but they kind of repackaged themselves as uh, a little bit more gourmet fast food. And the meat. I, yeah, got the, the meat. meat. They got the meats and stuff. I, I think Arby's is really uh, quite better than they used to be. Yeah. I like that biscuit Arby's. sandwich. They found their niche. It's all right. Yeah, it's not the best, but I mean, you can, there's no it's, Arby's it's sandwich. No. There's no such thing as an Arby's sandwich that won't remind you of a better sandwich somewhere else. Sure. That's true. what I say about Arby's. But, you know, at least it reminds you of a better sandwich somewhere else instead of just settling for, this is a fast food cheeseburger, not an actual good cheeseburger. Right. McDonald's doesn't remind you of anything except for the... McDonald's, it's his own thing. It's his own thing. Arby's, it's like, this is at least kind of in the same neighborhood of an Italian club sandwich that I might have at a place that makes good sandwiches, kind of, so, you know. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And... Um, leave us a nice review on iTunes. Why don't you? Why don't you? 